Hi, welcome to the Family Business Podcast. I'm Russ Hayworth, and I'm a family business advisor, as well as the host of this show. In each episode, you'll find informative and engaging conversations with experts from around the world, covering a range of topics relevant to family businesses and family offices. The show is supported by Family Business UK, the largest organization in the UK dedicated solely to supporting, representing, and championing family business. To find out more about their work and how to become a member, visit their website, familybusinessuk.org. Right, let's get on with the show. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's show. This is part one of a two-part episode with a team of advisors from PNC Private Bank Hawthorne. Uh, In this episode and in the next episode, I'm joined by Max Barger, Avery Fontaine and Emily Bouchard. And we talk about all the different aspects of the conversations, the kind of things to think about if you are looking to sell your family business, but also what to do at that point, what happens next and how best to prepare for those. It's a two-parter with the first part being released obviously today and the next episode is coming on Monday. So if you're listening to this live as it were on the day of release, you don't have to wait too long for part two. You've got the weekend to listen to this part and then part two will be live on Monday morning. I am sure you're going to enjoy this conversation and the conversation that we have in part two. And so I'll hand over to part one now. Well, hello and welcome to this episode of the Family Business Podcast. I am joined today by three guests from PNC Private Bank Hawthorne. I will let them introduce themselves, but as a very high level um, hello, we are joined by Emily Bouchard, Max Barger, and Avery Fontaine. And today we're going to be discussing a fictional case study around a family that has decided to sell their business. So we're going to be digging into various different elements of that. But to start with, I'd really like to hear from our guests and allow them to introduce themselves more fully. So Emily, over to you. Thank you so much, Russ. It's wonderful to be here. I'm such a fan of your podcast and uh delighted to get a chance to support your listeners in this way. Uh, So I'm Emily Bouchard, and I am the head of the Institute for Family Success. That's part of the wealth sustainability aspect of Hawthorne's suite of services that serves the ultra high net worth clients of PNC Private Bank. And our focus at the Institute is on the human capital, the uh, emotional, the family dynamics, the communication and shared decision-making that needs to happen, especially in uh, family business ownership, and especially when you have some people that are in the business and some that aren't, and we'll be talking more about that today. Fantastic. And Max? Thanks, Russ. Um, And for the listeners, my name is Max Barger. I'm the Managing Director of PNC Private Bank Hawthorne Corporate Advisory. Uh, We provide coordinated advice to the business owner through both the corporate lens and the individual shareholder lens. Uh, We arm the business owner with information to make decisions that have impact on both the business and the family. So we help our clients make sense of how a transition of their business is going to impact them and their family and their community. Fantastic. And finally, last but by no means least, Avery. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Russ. Thrilled to be here. I'm Avery Fontaine. I run the Philanthropy and Impact team 
that is part of PNC Private Bank Hawthorne. We work with families a little bit differently than you may have experienced in the past. We work with families, especially uniquely business owners, as they're transitioning around their purpose and executing on that purpose. As you may know, um, that has expanded from pure philanthropy to all kinds of for-profit and non-profit vehicles and pathways in order to execute and uh, deliver on a family's purpose. Fantastic. And we are going to be accessing uh, your expertise um, from from all three of you throughout this uh, recording. I just want to caveat before we go into the specifics of the episode. This is a fictional case study that we've created. So there's going to be elements of it that the listeners are going to have to to go with. And in terms of the kind of depth of conversation that needs to happen in order to get to the point where families are looking to to sell, we're going to shortcut some of that in order to to make progress through the various elements. So there may be gaps in terms of things that have happened chronologically in in, uh, what compared to what would happen in real life. But we've gathered some questions that will help us go through the key elements. And to start off with, our fictional family have made the decision to sell their business. But what I'd like to start with is an exploration of the part of the journey that they would have gone to in terms of making that decision, along with the other stakeholders that they will have needed to communicate with in order to reach that decision. So to kick things off, uh, Max, would you say some thoughts on the considerations that would have been taken within the family in the discussions leading up to the point where they've decided to sell the business? Sure. Well, thanks for us. And, and I think it's you know, t- important to point out uh, that this fact pattern assumes that the business owner is including the family in this discussion, um, you know, in the decision-making process. And I think I would add that that is not always the case. Too often, I think uh, there's not coordination. And I think Emily can expertly and artfully articulate the importance of addressing that at the very beginning, uh, because it's going to drive many decisions. Um, if, If it is a family business, then possibly we have children and maybe some grandchildren who are involved in working in the business and some who are not. Uh, So what does ownership and the transition of ownership look like? What's fair and what's equal? And what's the difference between the two? Um, One of the first business owners I worked with as a fledgling attorney uh, was a family that owned a gas station and a garage. And the son was involved in running the business day to day. uh, But the two daughters were not involved, barely darkened the doorstep, as I recall. as I talked through the estate planning with the matriarch and patriarch, uh, the father said something that stuck with me for many years. And that's, he said, if we give the station to Jake, we aren't giving him an inheritance. We're giving him a headache. (laughs) So right there, dad acknowledged that if they gave the cash and other liquidity to the daughters and the business to the son, that son would spend his life working for his inheritance. Um, If they give the business, they're giving him cash flow, but they would be giving his daughter security because they already had cash flow. So I I think it's important to to point out that distinction for the family uh, to think through. Um, And assuming now that uh, 
you get through that discussion uh, on the technical side, uh, which is really the difference between Emily and I. <laughs> uh, I. I tend to stay on the technical side and Emily uh, comes and brings the important parts <laughs> to the discussion. <laughs> Uh, but on the technical side, they certainly would have to work through structure and possibly tax mitigation techniques. Um, you know, planning should should have started years in advance. And, you know, it's not something you want to try to cram in after you've signed an LOI and you're hip deep in due diligence. Uh, questions to wrestle with in, in this context, uh, it's, it's probably more efficient for mom and dad. You know, is it more important for mom and dad to hold on to the, hold all the cards and sell to a third party, or is it better to give minority interest to the kids over lifetime uh, so that when the sale occurs, all the family members benefit immediately? Uh, is it more efficient to achieve some charitable goals at the time of the ownership transition? Others may also consider whether holding on to the business instead of selling it, holding on to the business for that cash flow in retirement, it might make more sense. So. These could be some initial questions on both the technical side and, and on that softer side. Fantastic. And I think what we're essentially saying there is that there, there should be discussion and conversation and communication between the, the family. And obviously that will happen over an extended period of time. And Avery, I'm, in, I'm interested in terms of your experience in, in your role. You're obviously head of philanthropy and, and impact. And so perhaps get involved in these conversations, again, pre-sale, but the the ability to then do what you talk about is, is impacted by the liquidity event. But how far in advance of that should families be giving consideration to what happens next and the, the role of philanthropy can play uh, in that process? As early as possible. And we don't see that often enough or, you know, a lot of the art of, of this conversation comes into ensuring collaboration with the M&A attorneys, with the CPAs, with the families, other advisors, to make sure they know, A, we're not trying to disrupt a deal or stop a flow, but we are trying to make sure that at the very base level, we're taking care of the issues around tax deduction in the U.S. and thinking through uh, what that post-sale life is going to look like for so many, and this is increasing as um, the age of the business owner decreases. So we're seeing older Gen X and younger baby boomers beginning to exit, and their concerns are very different than in years before. They do have a sense of purpose for post-sale. And what does that look like? It's looking increasingly more, um, not so much complex, but more multifaceted than it did for their um, for their older older you know, older uh, family members or um, peers. And in that conversation, obviously there's a, we, there's a conversation around what do we need to set aside now? What shares do we need to put into that correct vehicle? What is that correct vehicle going to look like? So we, we, we have a, adapted and, and created a process called Amplify Impact in order to take a family through a diagnostic conversation that allows them to make better decisions. So it's not what we call fire ready aim, it's truly ready aim fire. They're really thinking through some of those facets of how do I want to in interact in my community post-sale? What does that look like? And the earlier you start that, 
the the more patience they will have because as 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 we all know you get closer to sale the level the pace and the level of anxiety increase and we don't want to add to that anxiety yeah absolutely and emily as max kind of um suggested in the the conversations he would be having um prior to, to any sale that there's multiple different elements obviously with, with something like this and when we're not going to go into the minute complexities of, of everything because um we frankly we wouldn't have enough time i don't think to, to go into absolutely every detail of this but there are technical aspects that need to be explored and understood uh, and there's also those elements within the family dynamics and the communication between family that is essential within this process as well C could you give some thoughts into let's say in an ideal world, how, how you would see communication within the family system itself around these kinds of decisions? Oh, it's, it's so important to think about it from a holistic perspective. And that's one of the reasons why um, I love that we're having this conversation with all three of us here with you, because the more you can have the technical and the future-oriented um, structures in place and thinking about how you want to do that in conjunction with the family side of it, the more likely it is that whatever you've put in place will actually fulfill what your goals are. And so often there's a sense of, oh, once we have it all in place and once we've made all these decisions, then we'll tell everybody. But that's, um, that tends to not uh, allow for the kind of input that you need and also the exploration of some other uh, perspectives that might have had you make some different decisions. And uh, we really take a strong uh, purpose-based approach, like Avery was saying, and we also bring in values uh, to really look at what is this all about? Like, for the sake of what do we even have this business? Why did we start it? Looking at it historically, what's gotten us to this point? What has us in this, this poise to decide to sell? And allowing for multiple perspectives to come in with that and curiosity to come in from um, multiple generations. You can have the grandchildren involved, too, that are old enough to understand, and especially if they are involved in the business in some way. And then the other thing that I think a lot of people miss is what are the unspoken expectations related to the business that you really want to create a space for exploring? right? Especially if people are working in the business. Have they been thinking that they left their career to work in the family business with the idea that they're going to eventually um, run it or be a part of it and be part of something that they feel so identified with uh, that hasn't necessarily, like maybe it was talked about at the beginning, like, yeah, come work for the business. But um, the idea of now we're selling it, maybe if they weren't included in that, that can cause a lot of mischief within family dynamics for sure. So that's one. And then the other thing is like Max was saying earlier, sometimes you can do really phenomenal planning well in advance and uh, make it so that there's shareholders within the family well before a sale. And you have people that are owners, but not part of the business. And then you have owners that are in the business. And taking the time to talk about what this looks like in a fair way makes a huge difference for the family because people that have been working really hard, and I love that example that Max gave, um, and like, it, if siblings are going to be ending up working for their other siblings and everybody's been benefiting, but some siblings have been working hard towards that benefit, how do we equalize that out? How do we make it so that um, the people that have been in the business get 
a bonus when a sale happens or get a little bit more? Or how does that look? And then also exploring like what key employees have had a huge influence on this and expanding out that conversation. So the family has a really good sense of not just the purpose of the business and what the history was around what got us to this point, but also what's our purpose in selling it and what is it we want to accomplish and how do we want to honor and acknowledge everyone who's played a role in getting us to this point. So I think those are the ones I would want to focus on in this conversation. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, another um, sort of uh, element that springs to my mind when we talk about the importance of communication is by having good, proactive, positive communication amongst the key kind of stakeholders and, and, and the wider group helps to eliminate the danger of assumption on certain elements of that so to, to go back to the point of whist again i'm making this up because it's a case study rather than a real life uh, example but let's say that the senior generation have gone we don't want to burden the next generation with this business we want to free them up to, to do what they want to do therefore we're going to sell and yet the next gen could be sat there going no we really want to take this business on we really want to, to make it our own and, and do it that way by entering into that communication really early on, rather than getting to the point where the contract's about to be sold, uh, signed and then go, oh, by the way, we've sold it, is going to avoid the danger that assumption is going to to ruin things. So again, strong advocate. And, and I think the, this is a great example of where teams can work together to, to for the greater benefit of the family clients is by exploring all of these different technical and the kind of more emotional elements around um, the the sale of the business. So um, hopefully we'll we'll get into more of the reasons why that's um, hugely beneficial as we progress through the episode. And I'll do I'll add this to it because there's a there can be a hesitancy to want to communicate with the family because when you don't know if the sale is going to go through, you don't want um, things to information to get out ahead of time. There's a sense of wanting to control the narrative and the messaging. And um, one of the things that we found is so helpful is when you have um, speculative conversations, you really allow for this exploration, but made very clear that you know this is um this is uh, high level, and we don't know necessarily the actual nuts and bolts of when and how this is going to look. And you also begin to educate the family on the importance of confidentiality and um, the way that uh, a sale could be jeopardized or impacted if there was um, a, a, by chance a talking about it outside of the family. So uh, that's a really important part too. I think that we often avoid talking and communicating because we don't want something to happen as opposed to using as an opportunity to educate. Yeah, absolutely. And building that into our scenario, we've made an assumption that there are external shareholders and there are members of the C-suite, so the executive kind of leadership team, who are non-family members. So again, in an ideal situation, what are the best ways to ensure the right and effective communication is had with those individuals, particularly around a decision as big as selling the business? I think that's a great question. Um, proper communication is clearly often an afterthought. Um, you know, usually after something bad happens, like an employee catches wind of a rumor that their employer is going to sell and the employees start leaving or you know, going to the competitors or, or you know, whatever the case might be. You know, ideally, and for I think for some larger businesses in particular uh, that go through that ownership transition, 
we'd look at pulling in a public relations slash communications team like Solberry Trout uh, to control the message early in the process. I mean, you, you don't want your CFO or top sales rep to jump ship based on a rumor. And there will be rumors floating around. And if you don't fill that vacuum with good news, the rumor mill will fill it with less good assumptions. Uh, but the timing has to be strategic and well thought out. And again, you know, a lesson that I learned from my days in law practice, I had a client who approached their top salesperson as a potential purchaser. And uh, the salesperson left and took 80% of the clients with him to his newly formed competing business. You know, what a nightmare scenario. Uh, so even with smaller businesses, it's, it's still valid to think through the communication strategy and execute on it. Uh, as you pointed out, I think early communication tends to be more productive and easier for employees and other shareholders to grasp and get on board with. And if you have that C-suite of shareholders, they are going to find out early because they're going to be supporting your due diligence prepping for the sale. So looping them in early in the discussions like this is, is definitely a, uh, the, the best practice. Um, you know, better may be a scenario where a non-family executive benefits from the sale and the value they've added to the company with an equity incentive plan. Uh, so, you know, I think if there are external shareholders, I'd want to understand more about the ownership percentages. If there's a danger of an uprising, and what does the shareholders agreement say about selling your portion? Are there restrictions, rights of first refusal, et cetera? We ran into that with a, a client we're working on right now where the attorney set up a sale, uh, you know, the M&A attorney set up a, a great sale and didn't quite go through the uh, all the iterations of the shareholders agreement. And, uh, and lo and behold, there were some buyout and first refusal uh, clauses that, that were going to come into effect if, if, uh, if, if they went down that path. So I, I just think the best advice here is don't ignore the importance of controlling the message and recruiting professionals to help you make strategic communication decisions. Uh, in a scenario where there's family ownership or there's all family ownership, it's still, uh, to Emily's earlier point, it's vital to control the message because again, employees, suppliers, clients, they'll fill in information, that information void with unflattering assumptions that could negatively impact your sales price. Yeah, I completely agree. And, and I'm particularly keen to explore uh, from the, the angle of family dynamics. Uh, so Emily, perhaps your best to, to kind of come in on, on uh, the, the start of this answer, at least. In terms of the considerations for each group of stakeholders. So we've mentioned about the the fact that you could have family members who own the business but don't work in it. You could have some that perhaps have made assumptions that they one day would be an owner or work in it that are going to be impacted by this, and obviously those that, that take up multiple roles uh, within the business itself. But what are the kind of considerations that need to be taken into account for each of these groups of stakeholders when trying to come to, to reach a conclusion on this decision. Well, yeah. How much time do we have? Like, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it's obviously very complex. And oftentimes, because it can be overwhelming and complex, there can be a sense of, wait, we don't even know where to start. 
um, and there can be an avoidance of talking about it. So I like what Max said in terms of, you know, bring in some trusted advisors that um, are really comfortable and know this space really well so that you're not alone in it. And it's there are some some well-researched standards of practice that people can do. And Russ, you know, that's the work you do. And there's, there's things that um, family-owned businesses can uh, tap into that can make a big difference in terms of how to consider all the different people that own a business. And I even like to say, you know, there can be a real sense of ownership, even if you don't have a share in it, just because your family name is on that building, or you know that the story of how your great grandfather started it, right? So there's there's a a whole level of deep sense of ownership and identity related to businesses that you don't want to ignore. And uh, that's where we like to start is really like, where are people's relations? And some people are like, oh, I could care less about the, the company at all, but the building, oh my gosh, let me tell you the story about that building. And it's like, oh, we hadn't even thought about that, right? So there's, and there's also, um, I'm sure you've seen this a lot, where um, as a way to try and somehow make things fair, there might be people who are shareholders of the operating business and others that have been given real estate. And so then the building aspect versus the business aspect becomes quite significant when you're looking at a sale of the business, but maybe where you're going to continue to own the building and lease it back. Or, And you need to be looking at what are the structures that are in place. And I like that Max highlighted that. Like, really look at what legally is already there. And then do take the time to educate people about their roles and whatever degree they've either been given shareholder um, uh you know, shares in the business, or they've been, uh, they're part of a family LLC around um, ownership of the real estate, whatever it might be. Uh, what does it actually mean? And making sure that people are well-educated and, you know, you, you're getting to benefit from this and you have this role and responsibility related to it so that there's a really good sense of that within the family dynamics. And then the other thing that we highly recommend is whoever's in the business, that there are some sort of standards for their role that everyone's aware of. That transparency is hugely important. So if let's say there's a family member that's been working in the business and they actually have been very instrumental in building up to the sale and doing the research and the you know getting everything together, if the family doesn't know that, they may think that, oh, they just lift out because of their birth order or their gender or favoritism. And what you want to do is take that out of the equation by having like, what are the qualifications to be in that role? And what are the standards for performance in that role? And how are we measuring that in observable ways? And when you take that into the equation and everybody understands that, then when a sale does happen and somebody benefits more financially or has been benefiting, right? maybe they've been using the company car or maybe they've um, had perks from being in the business. There's an understanding of why they would have that as opposed to uh, presuming it. I, I think Max is highlighting, you know, if you're not transparent and you're not communicating, always the mind is just geared towards presuming the worst. And you want to minimize that as much as possible. So that's a family dynamics aspect of it that I would um, want to make sure to highlight. Excellent. And uh, Max, do you, is there anything more in terms of the kind of interplay with, with other stakeholders in, in that situation as well? Yeah, I, I, well, I think uh, just spending time on understanding who your stakeholders are, you know, certainly the owner and the family, but the employee. So all the employees, management, sales, production, other shareholders, the buyer, suppliers, customers, vendors, 
and probably even more important than than most of us give it credit, but the public, uh, who who you know in your community, uh, there will be you know there they are stakeholders as well, particularly if if you hold a a prominent place in the community, if there's a, a building with your name on it or something like that, uh, those are all stakeholders and and they they have valid concerns and and again, the rumor mill will start if if uh, if we don't fill that with uh, with good ideas. Fantastic. And we've spoken about the importance of communication as, as part of kind of a, the educating and bring, bring everybody to the same place with the same information around it to, to avoid kind of uh, any uh, challenges on, on that front. If we assume that the decision has been made, that, that there's going to be that sale, so, so everybody in that process has understood what's needed to happen through good communication, great advice and, and coherent advice from the right group of advisors. Um, what are some of the advice that we can give on how best to then communicate that both internally and externally? Because that, internally that can feel very disruptive. If someone feels like there's new owners coming in, they, there can be worry and concern and anxiousness around that. And then again, externally from a kind of customer and community perspective, there's, there can often be that concern of, oh, but we've loved this business for so long. And I mean, sometimes it might be the other way around, in which case it's, it might be good news. But it, it, to, to try and allay some of that anxiety, what are some of the ways we can communicate that? Yeah, uh, Russ, you know, if, if you've seen one business sale, you've seen one. Uh, just, each one is so different with a mix of personalities and industry and environmental challenges and employees and structure and law from from uh, jurisdiction to jurisdiction I, I, it's it's very difficult I think to make generalizations that said though I, I I don't think there's one best way to communicate other than to think through it strategically and get some communication professionals on your team on your side to help you think through who your stakeholders are and consider the impact on each group and how they're going to hear your message so address it early in the process. Don't put it off or ignore it. Uh, again, much of the communication strategy is tied to your governing documents, uh, the shareholders agreement, the buyholder or buy-sell agreement, local law. Um, yeah, so so all those things I, I think are important. And, and I, I mentioned it just uh, uh, a minute or two ago, but don't forget about the public, um, especially if you occupy that important and visible place in your community. Um, it's it's definitely important to think through them and get the word out that you want to be the word, not what somebody makes up. Yeah, great points. And then in terms of the family side of it, uh, one of the things that uh, I love is probably one of my favorite parts of the, the role I get to play is when we can do a uh, family assembly, like do a really large meeting with all the family members, including younger um, members of the family, especially, and um, especially if there's a chance that the sale is public or is going to be in the news on some level, or it's going to be known. And um, making sure that the whole family is aware of the, the messaging that has been decided, it would be the best way to talk about the sale and have the family get a chance to dig a deep dive in why that messaging, what's important about it, um, asking questions, even if there's um, a, a, a other opinions about it, like giving a place for 
at total exploration of that messaging. And then doing some really great education around not only how to handle posting on social media about things, but more importantly, how to respond to the public's reaction to it, anticipating those reactions, doing some role plays. If you encounter somebody on the street, if you encounter somebody on social media, or if, and there's different reactions or opinions or questions, uh, how to be able to be in a place of total grounding in your family's values and the narrative that you have about it so that you feel really confident and competent in terms of managing and handling that. And doing it in age-appropriate ways is so important. So you can have breakout groups for the different ages uh, that where the whole family gets to feel really supported in this major shift that is about to happen for them. And it is a big thing. It's I can't stress enough what it means to be identified as a business-owning family to no longer having that identity in your community. And having them take the time to look at who are we and what's our identity without this business is extremely important. Yeah. And uh, Avery, I'm interested in, in terms of the, the role that you can play in, in helping with some of the, if we're talking about identity and purpose as a f- business owning family, and at, at some point that, that's going to stop. I'm assuming the discussions that you're having with families in this situation is to help them identify what their purpose and identity can be beyond being that business-owning family and moving into perhaps a different role. Can, can you speak to, to that a little bit in terms of, of your role? Well, it's reputation risk management, right? And the sense of philanthropy and purpose and how that family or even distinct individuals within that family are who may have a higher profile are engaging in that process, obviously the earlier the better, but aside from vehicle selection, uh, the issue comes down to what is the impact that individual and collection of individuals would like to have? And there are going to be differences. You cannot assume everybody's on the same page. In fact, it would be absolutely foolhardy to do that. So working with that family, sometimes it's easier to talk about impact. It's external. It's something, you know, it's easier to understand, it's easier to debate versus intrinsic values. Um, because as we know, uh, many families have a wide range of values they espouse. <laughs> and to find that 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 place of commonality can be fraught. And to add that level of, of potential disagreement or, or stress to a sale process can just blow it up, frankly. And something we instead focus on in terms of reputation risk management is the impact they collectively would like to have with with that brand name in the community, right? And so thinking through how to accomplish that can be vital. And we have a process, obviously, to do that. But what we're seeing is uh, increasingly that aha moment with, with the family collectively, especially when you're dealing with multiple generations, is the combination, the use of multiple vehicles. So we're going to do philanthropy this way around these topics and have this type of impact, but we're going to add to that or backstop it or amplify it with some for-profit initiatives. And what I'm seeing recently, a specific case right now we're working with is the family says, you know, I want our younger generation to have the opportunity to build anew, not just to 
obviously put more uh, more assets in the coffers and be responsible for the next generation of of growth in a, in the next way that they would like to be. But how do we combine the two? How do we combine that sense of philanthropy and that next generation of business owners within the family and and continue the entrepreneurial spirit? And this particular family is focusing on ag tech, and their next gen is working with the the younger baby boomer generation and they are combining efforts and building a new company together that has a specific focus around not just their belief system but their impact that they seek collectively now they each have their own individual things right and they we, we were able to structure it so that everybody has their own their own pot of money to to grant out of but they collectively come together around this topic of the environment and in their case they're running an ag tech company together and that has helped immensely in the in this case strife that it took to move from or to transition from business owner to uh, post business sale yeah and the a lot of what we've spoken about already it is around the importance of having broad comprehensive conversations uh, around multiple different areas it's not just about focusing on say the technical aspect it's not just focusing on how to communicate it it needs to be across a, a very broad um, spectrum on that and one of the um, keys i guess in terms of getting people to a sufficient level of knowledge and understanding of the situation and what the implications are is the ambition is to help them avoid the regret of selling the business it's not something that's done uh, you, know, you wake up on a Monday morning and go, right, we'll sell it. And by Friday, it's, it's sold. Um, also, with something like a, a business sale, it's quite hard to undo. It's not unheard of that businesses are bought back and, and brought back into to, uh, family ownership. But to, to help families kind of mitigate and avoid the potential for regret, what are some of the areas we can help them explore to kind of ensure we are covering all bases? And Max, perhaps you can sort of lead us off on that one. Sure, yeah, it, it, you know, and regret is is a real thing. Um, the Exit Planning Institute conducted a survey of business owners who sold their businesses and 75% of the respondents profoundly regretted selling their business within 12 months of the transition. Um, you know, I, I saw that with a client who jumped into an LOI and within the first 12 months of his three-year earnout, he realized there was no way he would be able to hit his earnout goals. So first, understand what you want and what you need and what you're going to do the day after closing, uh, you know, understanding what you need is vital, I think, to avoiding a seller's remorse. It, it also helps you know if the offer you receive will get you to the goals you set uh, for, for your family. Understanding what you want, for example, uh, sending grandkids to college or retiring to a mountain cabin or funding a scholarship. You know, wrapping some of that into the transaction or the penumbra of the transaction may make the sale more satisfying. Um, and, and then, uh, you know, coming back to some of the things that Emily ha has talked about, but 
for the family to avoid regret. You know, I, I experienced this with my own family. When, when the family business was sold, our identity was so tied to that structure, that, uh, that location. Uh, it, it just left a hole in your soul. And, you know, that's, that's something that you can work through, but you can't work through it if you ignore it. You have to address it. You have to recognize it and address it and talk through how, how you're going to deal with it. Uh, that, that has to be a part of, uh, of, uh, of, of the planning process. Yeah. And I'll, I'll add to that, that um, one of the things that I've seen that's been really heartbreaking is when the sale happens in instances where it's a complete sale and there is not um, a family member that's still in the business helping it transition, but where it's a clean sale, um, the key, the locks are changed. You don't get to go back in and say, oh, that, that legacy book that was created or Oh, all those things that we did in terms of our our mission and our values for the business. Like, so be sure if you're doing a sale that you take the time to keep whatever is personally valuable and meaningful for you. That's not necessary for the company, but more something for the family um, in artwork and pictures. And you really want to make sure you're taking care of like the personal aspect of it before the date of the sale. That is a regret that is so avoidable and can get missed because you're so focused on that bottom line and getting to the finish line and you worked for so long to get there. And it's it's a one that I, I just I want to make sure is highlighted because you can easily avoid that pain, right? There's so much pain we can't, but that one you can. Um, and then I'd love for Avery to chime in because um, having a purpose that you're moving towards can make it so that you're less likely to focus on the regret. Exactly. And uh, one thing we do during the during the ready fire ready aim fire process in, in terms of making sure they don't pull a trigger too fast is um, is helping the family think through a little bit of past, present, and future. And in that exercise, without going into too much detail. We really help anchor the family in how are these ideas rooted in your family? And, you know, it could go back as far as 200 years and the effect or the influence you could have could go as far as 150 years. You have a 350 year span of influence. And if you question your import as a result of the sale, please don't. You have been, are, and will be incredibly important in multiple areas, and you have control over those areas of import. And let's talk about the different ways to execute. So I think giving that sense of history, present impact, as well as future, um, can often take some of the sting out of that, that, you know, the shock out of that transition. And then personally, I think that the other side is uh, the regret that a business owner can have because of how much they've identified of their role as leader in the business. And the, I often recommend as soon as you're thinking about selling a business, start thinking about what's your next chapter going to look like. And there's wonderful books and resources um, that we can recommend based on your, your personality and your um, style and what matters to you. But very few business owners that we've encountered ever have the sense of, oh, I can't wait to go drink my ties on the beach. Or I can't wait to be golfing for the rest of my life. It might be appealing for a little while, uh, you know, because they work so hard. But that drive, that um, purpose-driven life that they've had for so long uh, needs to have a, an avenue for fulfillment and identifying beyond that. So the, 
the impact piece that Avery's team works with with folks really helps aim you in the right direction in terms of what your future looks like. Yeah, I, I think that's such a key point in in terms of obviously when you're going through a sale process, the focus is on the sale process, and at some point that sale process ends, and there's sale day and because it's a, a, a good occasion in our, our scenario, there's the celebrations around that sale process being completed. And then you've got life from that point forward and the importance of understanding what it is that's going to help sort of maintain your identity, your purpose, and, and how you want to be spending your time. The day after sale is not the point to be considering that, right? We need, we need to be talking about this as part of, the overall um, sale process. But what are some of the immediate things that, that families can be doing and talking about to, to make sure that there's not this kind of big celebration and then a kind of, oh, crikey, there's real life ahead of us again now? Yeah, so uh, so considerations for after the sale is completed, I would say, uh, you know, well, don't spend, don't spend it all in one place. <laughs> Just uh, kidding there. <laughs> but, on my uh, ties. <laughs> right. On my ties, right. Uh, you know, all, all kidding aside, uh, you know, you'll, you, and this is more the technical side, you, you're of course going to have to pay taxes on the proceeds. So definitely find out what that looks like while you're structuring the deal um, because, you know, you, you can uh, you can pull some pull some levers and, and, uh, and impact that uh, greatly. Uh, uh, you know, along with that, um, what does your cash flow look like the day after the sale? What, you know, will you be able to afford the lifestyle you've become accustomed to? Um, and maybe more important is that existential question that Emily pointed out. What are you going to do? That is, do with your life the day after and three years after and 10 years after. And, and Russ, to your, your point, uh, that immense volume of the due diligence process and the speed required to get it all completed, it, it often crowds out the focus on what really matters, you know, what happens to the individual shareholder and the impact on the family. Yeah, we're seeing increasingly the more or the earlier we have a conversation about what problems do you see in the world? What would you like to fix? What innovations inspire you that you're reading about now? Sort of get them thinking and using their incredible experience and intellect and share that and communicate that with everyone in the family and stakeholders as well, C-suite if they can, because you'll often find that, you know, they're not alone in what they're reading and observing and getting that excitement around, here's what's going on outside of our sale. And here's how with this new level of liquidity, how we can be a part of that. And there's so much happening around pick it pick a topic how do we how do we engage and how do we you know of course as reputation risk management we want to be involved in good things we don't want to be you know name the sackler family right we don't want that level of fear and, and recrimination we want to think through our our um the way we interact with the world around us but thinking through it earlier can actually get them excited about what that liquidity can accomplish for them yeah, and emotionally, I would say uh, have on your calendar the day after a sale is supposed to be complete what you're planning on doing. 
Like really plan out that next week, next two weeks, and give yourself time to adjust. Uh, as much as it's a really positive thing that you've worked so far towards, it's there's also a loss that's happened. And uh, there's this other concept that we often teach in terms of splash out where you've received something so huge, you've received something so important to you that there can actually be negative emotions that happen afterwards. It's like they're splashing out of you to receive all this good that's coming in. And being aware of that ahead of time can really be helpful. Otherwise, it can be very confusing and it can be disconcerting. And allowing yourself to have some space to feel whatever you're feeling and to really expand the receptivity. And then the other side, very practically, is if this is going to be a windfall, right? If you actually have gone from being kind of the millionaire next door and you've been investing all your money back into the business and you've been living pretty frugally and, you know, and all of a sudden you become like multi, multi, like millionaire, billionaire. It, it, we've seen, we work with people that have, you know, catapulted into a whole other stratosphere overnight. The more you can prepare for that, the better. And at the time that that sale happens, it's such a huge learning curve you're on, right? Like it's like you have this moment of everything that's gotten me to this point has been really useful as a business owner. And now I get to find out what does it mean to be a mogul and a bit money manager, right? And hopefully there's there's a lot of skills that translate, but there's also who are the trusted advisors that I want to start meeting with and how do I really prepare my whole family for what this means to have this kind of windfall. And I liked how Max started off with don't spend it all at once. There is this sense of windfall awareness where um, there's a lot of good research around how to support families in uh, benefiting immediately from this result. And you want to give yourself some space to enjoy like, and dream. I love, you know, like how Avery was saying, like, what is who we are presently and future? Like, what's something I'm really looking forward to with this? And Giving, like setting aside a certain percentage that uh, you are able to spend as the owner that you want to make sure the family all has a like definitely benefit from it and collectively talk as a family about what are the optics we want to have around this, right? Do we want to be seen driving super fancy cars, buying multi-million dollar mansions? Multi, you know, do we want to be seen as doing that? What do we want to be known for? How do we want to be seen? Not that those are, there's no judgment around that. It's more, what is it that we want to be known for and seen as a family? And then where do we want to have that personal expression be, um, where everyone is open to it? Like, it's your money, you can do what you want with it. Uh, so it's really important to have that both and approach. And with a certain percentage, but again, with the, hey, we have tax implications and we, we got to learn a lot. We got a learning process here and we're going to invest some money that we've received from the sale into becoming highly competent wealth owners and wealth stewards, right? It's different than being a business owner. What does that look like? It's a different set of skills and having um, a really great uh, process for that and having some mentorship around it and some leadership around it can make a huge difference. And if you can do it before the sale, it's even better. But that's that would be something to highlight. And I'll interject here really quickly, thinking about a practical matter about structure. So many family <clears throat> family run businesses, the office of the business runs their family office as however it functions during running, you know, pre-sale and it also runs their philanthropy. So they're doing a lot of their 
community outreach or connectivity through the corporate foundation or through the corporate DAF, if, that, if, if they're running it that way. So they're very used to that functionality and to expand that and to change it not only is stressful, but it like like Emily said, there is a huge learning curve there. And I think being able to put all those pieces and parts around them and begin those conversations earlier really helps alleviate that stress. And and getting excited about, you know, one topic or another, no matter where that curiosity leads them, maintaining that curiosity and being open to a new way of operating. Um, and it could even be easier, right? So that's that's a key piece that we try to we try to reinforce as early as possible. Yeah, I guess linked to that as well, and, and just kind of expanding on some of the elements to explore with families is for, for those that kind of own and run the business, they're used to having an element of control over the kind of destiny of the trading enterprise or the, the business side of things. And that takes a particular set of skills and awareness of the markets that they operate in and the, what the competitors are doing. And that that's entirely different to to when you have a, a a bunch of cash, right? In terms of that, there can be an assumption as well that if you're a highly successful business owner, that you will naturally be a highly successful money manager or somebody who can look after the the financial sides. And so, I guess part of this process is exploring, uh, not making that assumption, and being able to explore with families how they're going to make those kind of decisions post sale yeah i so i i would just say you know, to to support that uh, one of the business owners that i'd worked with came from a very middle class family uh very hard working and the first loi that showed up on his desk unsolicited he jumped at it because it was more money than he'd ever seen in his life and more money than he could it was almost as if we were dealing with a lottery winner rather than a business owner. And, and, and that's, it's, it's really, it's a, and this is where Emily, this is Emily's expertise, uh, but, but talking through that, uh, that part, you know, that, that element of, of the sale that's completely ignored and not even recognized in many cases until it's gently pointed out and, and so vital to, to walk through and, uh, and have open conversations about. Yeah, I think that uh, the, the more somebody has an awareness of where their skills, their talents, their abilities are the strongest and how it's gotten them to where they are and being able to articulate it and understand it and know it, the more they're able to look at where will these translate in other places in the world and in the impact I want to make and have. And what can happen is there can be the sense of, well, because I was successful in this domain of business, I can be successful in this other domain of business. It's like, there may be very different market factors involved in that. There may be very different distribution channels. Like, so it's not a, a definite that it, it shifts from one to the other. And um, I really enjoy watching Shark Tank. And I love how there's like, nope, it's a great business idea. I love you guys, but that is not the area that I'm a specialist in. So I'm not going to be able to invest in you. And I always think they're so clear. They know their lane. They know where they really excel and where they can add value and where they're not going to be wise. And they often talk about, oh, yeah, I invested in this co another company that's a lot like yours. And didn't go well, was not my skill. And I think that's the other thing I would offer is 
there will be mistakes that will be made as you're exploring what's next, right? If you're learning how to be invest and you're learning different ways of private equity and in the markets and um, unusual ways of investing or in businesses, um, there will be some that will be very successful and some that won't. And allowing yourself to expand into this world and know that we learn from mistakes and to just be wise in terms of not overly investing in one area until you really get your ground underneath you, you know, your, your feet on the ground underneath you with it. And uh, allowing yourself to learn and be like, oh, I, I get to have a beginner's mind again. I get to learn in a new way. And a lot of people we work with are very savvy about the markets overall and have been looking at investing. But others have been so focused on their businesses that they really do have a quite a large learning curve. And when you're commanding uh, a number of zeros beyond what you've ever seen before, like Max was saying, it is a learning curve because you have access to more options. And you have a lot of people that are going to be coming at you in terms of, oh, you can invest in this or that. And once your sale is known, you will be countering that. So knowing like what your standards are, what you're willing to play with, invest in, that's also really important. What's my investment policy and what does that look like for me and as my family? I agree. And it translates to the staff or the expertise you hire as part of that next family office structure, right? Thinking through, what did I need as a business owner? How does that, what what continues into this next phase and what maybe doesn't? So a mistake I do often see is taking so much of that same personnel from the business into the family office and not necessarily thinking about those new skills or new, new levels of expertise they need in the next phase. And, you know, for a purposes concerned, we really see that a great deal. And there's sort of a workout you know, period that happens there. And some scale up, some, you know, elect out, that kind of thing. It does it does provide more transition or sense of transition there when when they're not as aware of that um, that need differential. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to, um, the, the mention of lottery wins. Uh, in a previous life, when I was in my financial planning and wealth management career, I used to work with lottery winners. And it was infinitely interesting to me to to explore the different ways in which people dealt with that sudden wealth because for some it was terrifying it was we bought a ticket we never actually thought we were going to win and now we have we're terrified of, of you know the, the options and alternatives that we have I guess again what we're saying here is the merit of being able to prepare and plan and, and have communication around that is it may still feel alien to have a substantial amount of wealth in say a bank account compared to it being wrapped in in the value of a business but by at least preparing and having those conversations beforehand can help for, for what's then going to be expected from the point of sale the, the thing that i used to say to to a lot of the lottery winners is don't rush like you you've you've won that's fantastic now just relax and get used to the fact before making any huge decisions around whether you're going to buy, like you were saying, Emily, whether you're going to go down the route of buying mansions or buying yachts or supercars or anything like this. Uh, I remember a story where a guy came in and he'd won a substantial amount, but he then rattled off, I've done this, I've done this, I've bought this, I've put a deposit on this, I've told my, he was employed, so I've told my boss to, to you know, go away um wasn't quite the term he used um and i was mentally in my mind adding up all the stuff that he 
spent money on, and he'd kind of gone through the whole the whole amount. He'd, he'd bought so much or put put so much on because he'd rushed to that kind of decision making around. I must do this. I must do that. And I think part of what we're uh, kind of advocating as well is the importance of taking time to consider what the new world is going to look like and planning around that rather than thinking, I have to do something straight away. You know, the other thing I'll ask you about, Russ, is um, oftentimes in the States, lottery winners um, are known publicly. Like um, it's not, and I think that's another analogy to bring to this as well. Because once it's known that a sale has happened, you may want to take some time, but you're going to have external people coming at you, knowing better for you what you should do than you. And it can feel very overwhelming. And so having like a clear narrative in terms of thank you for approaching me, happy to look at your materials, not making any decisions for the first six months. Thank you. Like you have that power. You have that ability to do that as you're building your structures, like what Avery was saying and looking at what is it that I need to have around me that supports me in my learning around what's next for us. And to that end, we're seeing a lot more uh, requests for anonymity in everything. Right. And, and so when I did work with a lottery winner, years ago and we were able to get to them early enough through their lawyer to advocate for anonymity and they were able to do that and that was that saved them in many cases because we all know the stats right so it's but we are seeing across the board uh, a desire for anonymity in multiple multiple spheres and on the planning side um uh, just (laughs) this very scenario uh came up with the client and and as we were talking through what what the family wanted to do with the money that they'd received, and, and, and it was it was a small business, but still a substantial you know still a substantial amount. They were Hawthorne qualified, <laughs> um, and uh, they uh, it, it was a he was a young entrepreneur though when when he sold his business, and he had all these plans that didn't include going back to work very quickly. And when we ran the plan for for them, um, they were running out of money by the time they were in their mid fifties. And he said, "How's that? How's that possible?" And you know, I, being the, uh, always trying to keep it light, I I said, um, "Well, you know, twenty million dollars isn't what it used to be." Um, <laughs> but but to your point, Russ, it, it's taking the time. To, you don't have to make the decisions. You don't have to go buy a new house or build a house, uh, uh, you know, on the beach or something like that tomorrow. You, you can take time and, and think through those decisions and, and make wise decisions along the way. Well, that is it for part one of this episode. If you want to find out more about Hawthorne um, and the team at PNC Private Bank Hawthorne, please head to their website, which is hawthorne.pnc.com. Much more to come from the team in part two, which we released early next week. And uh, I look forward to bringing you that conversation very shortly. Thank you for listening. If you found this episode useful, please share it with friends and family. And it would be great if you could leave me a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It helps the show get found by others who are looking for help and support with owning or running their family business. 
If you are looking for support with a particular challenge, you can head to fanbizpodcast.com forward slash work with Russ and find out more about how I may be able to help. Until next time, take care.